The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading for today is from Mark 8, 27 through 9, 1. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? and forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. All right. Thank you, Michelle, for reading that passage of Scripture. What a, what a hallmark text this is. It's got a little bit of everything in it, um, including a very clear uh, articulation of the identity of Jesus, which is something that in our day and age... Anywhere you look, you will see people conscripting Jesus into their way of thinking. And and people are doing this with with Jesus, uh, even though they may have very different opinions of who he actually is. Uh, and, And I see this happening a lot, and I think one of the values of this passage of Scripture, especially for our day and age, um, one of the many, is, is this part where, where Jesus gives an identity uh, of who he is and, and, and basically asks his disciples, and the way he frames it and, and the answer that he gives indicates that what you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you. And I'll say that a couple of times during this message, but, but I wanted to start with that thought because it's, it's something to test, right? It's either true or it's not. Um, but we do see this, this way of, of making Jesus into whoever we want him to be. And in this passage, he, he gets specific about who he, really, who he really is. So if I turn this microphone around and invited you all to come up here and to 
you know, and just said, hey, tell us the most important thing about you, uh, the most important thing that we could know if we really wanted to know who you are. Um, here's, what would you say? I imagine there'd be several Enneagram numbers uh, that would come up, right? There would be, um, you know, places where you grew up. When I was in college, that, the answer to that question would have been very easy for me. The most important thing you could know about me is I'm an introvert. I love being an introvert. I, I took the Myers-Briggs in college. Uh, I was an INFP, and now I'm an INFJ. Uh, I think studying theology and doctrine had something to do with the shift from um, perceiving to judging. <laughs> and I don't know how I feel about that, but I do know how I feel about that I. The I means introvert. And I remember when I took this test um, that when I got the results back, I had one question that put me on the introvert side of things. And I remember being upset that that happened in the first place because introverts, come on. I mean, extroverts, come on, you know. Ugh. But I knew, that the, I knew what the question was. Uh, it was, and it was a flawed question because the question started at a party, do you, and then it almost doesn't even matter what the rest of the question is because I had to hypothetically insert myself into a party because I'm an introvert and introverts don't go to parties, right? And so I just picked one and that put me on the extrovert scale at least a little bit because see, here's the thing, is I thought God was an introvert uh, I th and how could he not be, right? Because the way that I, my introvert expressed itself, at least from my perspective as a college student, was was I spent hours alone in a coffee shop with my Bible and journals, writing profound things. <laughs> I mean, you guys would not believe uh, the depth of what I came up with in Waffle Houses. Um, I counted myself to be a sensitive, introspective, intellectual artist, a lover of words and the way that they work. And I really... I'm happy to say I owed it all to God that he wired me like that. Um, and I figured he was like that too because I had met extroverts. And I, just my impression of extroverts, if you're an extrovert, just take it on the chin for a second. My impression of extroverts was basically, you're the dog smiling with its head out the car window as it goes down the road. You're just happy, everything's fine, you're gregarious. But I... I was mining the depth of wisdom and truth and beauty and goodness. So after being in seminary, I took the Myers-Briggs again, and this is where I found out that uh, I wasn't an INFP, but I was an INFJ. But the other thing that I learned when I took that was that my introvert scale had very much moved to the middle. Um, and when I got those results back, I'm going to tell you something that's true. You may not believe it. But when I saw that I was kind of half and half introvert and extrovert, I wept. I did. I really did. Like, I, I was at that place in my life where it mattered so much to me that this was my identity and all that I thought it was, that I felt like I was, I was losing the lion's share of my worth as, as that, was, that something bad was happening to me. Uh, in, that, in that shift. 
Can you identify with that? Have you had that experience where you have an idealized version of yourself in mind and life happens? Or maybe this happened to you when you bought a minivan for the first time. And you're like, I swore that I would never do this and doggone it if it's not the most practical vehicle on the face of the earth with its remote sliding doors and... Here's, here's the thing, we do this, right? We, 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 we have things that we look at and we say, that carries my worth, it carries my identity. It could be your art, it could be your income, it could be your popularity, it could be your physical beauty, it could be your education, your pedigree, it could be your dreams, it could be your kids and your family, it could be your ability to organize things, right? We, we have these things in our lives where we look at and we say, if you want to know who I am, this is who I am. Just look here. It's, it's the thing I would put forth first. When we do this, we're trying to get at something beautiful, I think. Right? We're, we're trying to get to an answer to the question that we all carry deep in our hearts. And that, and that question is this, how do I know that I'm lovable? How do I know that, that my, how can I know for sure that my life has, has worth and it has meaning, that it's, that it's important? And so we look for answers to that. We look in accomplishments, personality traits, things that set us apart from others. And, and we do that as, as though the answer to these burning existential questions are somehow found within ourselves that that answer is something you're going to find inside of me. I just need to uncover it and articulate it. And listen, trying to establish our value by how we, we measure up in the world, it's a, it's a young man's game. It's a young person's game. And the reason it is is because those things that we look to, they, they fade, they get eclipsed, beauty fades, energy dissipates, Right? Economies fluctuate, jobs change. Um, it, the answer to the question, how do I know? How do I know that I'm lovable? Has to come from someplace outside of ourselves. It can't be from what we're offering, what we're bringing to the table. And so in our text, we read this in, in Mark 8. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. So they know that he's connected to God in some way, that God's in the picture. And he asks them, yeah, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you're the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is a great moment in Peter's life. I love the biographical information we get about Simon Peter. We, don't, we get more about him and the complexity of Peter than any of the other disciples. And this is one of those moments that kind of summarizes Peter in, in, a, in, a, in a single encounter. Because he has this this great moment. Matthew 16 fleshes this out. He tells us a little bit more than Mark does about what happened here. And, and that is, what we learn there is that there are these people who are just mere observers of Jesus' life. They, 
they connected him to God. They saw him as somebody who was filled with passion and power and this connection to the divine. And so they tried to figure out, well, who could that be? Well, it could be John the Baptist, right? Because back from the dead. Uh, because it sounded like the way John the Baptist was. Or, or maybe he was Elijah, who according to the Old Testament never died, but just kind of went off up into the sky. God took him up and he never came down. And then at the end of Malachi, the Lord tells his people he's coming back to prepare the way for the Messiah's coming. But Peter's the one who gives the answer when, when they ask, who do you say that I am? He says, you're the Messiah himself. It's so clear. It's so, and, and what, what that meant was you're the one who's going to redeem and deliver and save God's people. You're the one who's going to restore us to God. That's what, that's what his answer means when he says you're the Messiah. And Jesus told Peter in Matthew, that's where, that's where you see Jesus telling Peter, this is not something that, this is not an answer that just, came to you. This is given to you by the Holy Spirit. And that's when he changes his name to Peter, which means rock. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What's, what's the rock that he's talking about? The confession. He's, he's saying, I'm calling you Peter because the confession that you just made, that I am the Messiah, the Christ, the church is going to be built on that. And nothing will ever defeat it. Nothing will ever Throw, overthrow that. And so Peter's having himself a moment. He got one, right? Don't you love being right? Don't you love it? I mean, he stuck the landing on this one. So who do you say that Jesus is? We live in a culture that really encourages us to make of things what we will, to personalize. You can tell anybody who you are, and, and that's who you are. We, 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 have, we have the ability now in our culture to personalize everything about ourselves, um, including spirituality, to the point um, that the highest value that we can have when it comes to God is to really just kind of make God whatever we want him to be for ourselves. We even do this with Jesus. If the Jesus that you believe in is somebody who was basically in agreement with you on most things, um, maybe it would do, you would do well to study more about who he is. If, if the Jesus that you recognize is somebody who, who thinks just like you do, uh, there's some things to, to explore there, right? But to listen to the stories or to look at the life of Jesus, we, we could draw all kinds of conclusions. We could say, well, he's an inspirational teacher. He is an activist. He's a fool, right? He's a model, for how to live selflessly uh, and at peace and at love and, 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 and you know, loving our neighbor and that sort of thing. But listen, you will never encounter a more important question than the one that he's asking. Who do you say that I am? Because we can't know ourselves without knowing him and knowing why he came. And so that gets to the issue of, well, who gets to answer the question then? Where is the answer found? So if you take it upon yourself to provide the answer to the question, who is Jesus, then you're going to make him what you want. But it's ultimately going to leave you wanting, and it's ultimately going to leave you miserable. But when we embrace the answer that Jesus himself gives, it's an answer that goes deep. It's also an answer that's going to cost you everything. But it's also going to lead to the deepest 
joy that you could ever know and you could ever want. So what is the answer that he gives? Well, here's how the text continues. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So here's a place where Jesus is saying, all right, listen, this is how this is going to go. I am going to suffer many things. I'm going to be rejected by the religious leadership and I am going to be killed and after three days I'm going to rise again. So you may say, why didn't, the, why didn't the disciples, why were they so surprised by this when it actually happened? And to that I would say, well, put yourself in their shoes. This, this doesn't happen. What he's saying is, it, it, where we have to go with this in our minds and hearts is this probably is a metaphor, right? Because you know what doesn't happen? People get killed and then three days later they rise from the dead. So you have to do something with that to figure it out. And they, they couldn't understand. So we can go easy on them. Uh, but here's what he says. And he said, he said this plainly, Mark tells us. And then what happened? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter did that. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said... Peter, can't we just work this out? No, that's not what he said, is it? He said, get behind me, Satan. To his best friend, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, three things happen in this little encounter here that are fascinating to me. The first is what Jesus says about the Christ. He says he will not be a political revolutionary. Instead, he's going to die at the hands of his own people. He's going to suffer many things. He's going to be killed. He's going to rise again. Why would the Messiah need to do this? Well, that gets to the heart of our question, right? Who is Jesus? The second thing that happens here is Peter rebukes Jesus for what he says. He just says, I hear what you're saying. I don't like it. You shouldn't talk that way. It's discouraging to all of us. Read the room, right? That's what he's saying. It doesn't fit Peter's vision, and Peter is just convinced that this can't be who you really are. And so he wants to bring Jesus into his vision for what Jesus' life and mission should be about. What's going on here? Well, Peter, he's, he's looking around. He's looking at the world that he's lived in. He, he, everything is broken. Rome is broken. And he's assuming that a suffering Christ can't fix what's broken. And so he has, what he has to be instead is he has to be strong. And so what Jesus has said is not like any king that he's ever heard of or even imagined. And what's important to note here is Peter isn't conflicted right now. He's not confused and grasping at straws. He's operating out of conviction. He's rebuking Jesus for being wrong. The convictions that we believe most wholeheartedly are because from where we're sitting, they make the most sense. And when anybody threatens them or challenges them, our instinct is to Rebuke, 
is to dismiss, right? Because when we trust our own narratives implicitly, we become people that can just wave away truth if it doesn't fit. Can we admit that? That we can do that? We get lots of practice at it all the time, right? The third thing that happens here, I just raised two fingers. The third thing that happens here, three, is Jesus tells Peter, after changing his name to Peter based on a spirit-revealed truth about who Jesus is as the Christ, he says, get behind me, Satan. Why, why so strong? The answer is because it is a satanic thought to want to deter Jesus from the cross. Is that too strong to say? It's actually precise. And the reason it's precise is this was the point of Satan's temptation in the wilderness. It was the message of it, right? Is you don't have to lay down your life in order to rule. Satan says, worship me and I'll give you everything. I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. When Peter tries to deter Jesus from the cross, he's doing the same thing that Satan did in the wilderness. And here's where we get to the heart of it. The cross is why he came. The cross is why Jesus came. When Jesus starts talking about the cross, he isn't just making a statement about himself. He's making a statement about us. He's telling you and me, you need this. You, this is the most important thing that you need, is you need me to do this for you. And so the all-important question, why then? Why must Jesus suffer and die? What does it mean for us? This is how the text concludes, right? He calls the disciples to him with his disciples, and he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What is Jesus teaching here? Well, first... He's saying that he will lay down his life. He's going to do that. But second, he's saying if we follow him, we lay down our lives too. We have to. We take up our cross. What does that mean? Well, what it means is we can never find fulfillment in achievement or performance. It means at the height, well, okay, at the height of his career, Jim Carrey, I have, sorry, I just read my notes bad. That was embarrassing. At the height of his career, Jim Carrey was asked by, um, a reporter in an interview, um, what he would say to an aspiring actor now that he had reached the top. And I've, I've, said, I've, give, I've told you the story before, but if, if you've not heard the answer, here's what he, he said. He said, I'd tell, them, I'd tell them there's nothing up here. There's nothing up here. We can't find meaning by shifting from one performance-based identity to another. The way of the gospel is a whole new way. It's a whole new way. It's one that says, 
Your Messiah isn't calling you to earn the favor of God by trying to be a better person because that pursuit is going to end in failure. You're going to find that there's nothing up there. It's as Paul Simon said, you cannot walk with the holy if you're just a halfway decent man. In the gospel, Jesus is saying, lose your life, lose yourself, lose your trying. You're balancing the good against the bad. I'm going to lay down my life to save yours. Yeah, he calls us into a life of obedience, but not in order to accomplish that, but as a way of responding to that. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, for us, the kingdom of God begins with weakness, relinquishment, giving up our rights to our own life. It begins with admitting we need a savior. We need someone to actually fulfill all the requirements and pay for our sin. That's weakness. Jesus started in weakness, first by becoming a human, second by going to the cross. And if we want him in our life, we have to start in weakness too. The kingdom begins there, but it won't end there. Someday when Jesus returns and ushers in a renewed creation, love will totally triumph over hate and life will totally triumph over death. Jesus' answer to the question of who he is and to the question of what our lives are called to be, they involve the cross. They involve him laying down his life. What does that mean for us? First of all, it means that if we are to have a right view of Jesus, it will be a view where he is bent on searching our hearts and exposing our desperate need of him. And I love that he does that. I love that he does that. It's a call to deny ourselves and this call comes to a people who are experts at indulging ourselves. But Jesus' call is the call to follow him to the other side of death. He's defeated its power. He's defeated its sting. And he calls us to follow him into that life, which will involve losing everything we think can save us but won't. So Jesus takes a common belief about the Messiah that he would deliver them from external enemies, and he turns it on its ear, saying he didn't come to conquer warring nations, but warring hearts. And the people of Jesus' time expected the Christ to deliver them from Rome, but he actually came to deliver them from their own sin and from their own separation from God by paying the debt of our sin against him. And we need this. We need this because the most important truth about us is this. You were made for a relationship with your creator. So was I. We're searching for that. We're all searching for that. We were made for a relationship with our creator. Above all else, and Jesus is the only one who can put that right. And it was his mission. It was the point of his life and his death and his resurrection that we may have life by his life and his death and his resurrection. So what you believe about him is the most important thing about you. You were made for a relationship with your maker and Christ gives that and Christ alone. Let me pray. Father, thank you that when we turn to your word to learn, when we turn to your word to discover who you are, that what we don't find is a book of 
rules and mere doctrinal declarations and um, statements, but we, we find stories and we find relational complexity and we find narrative and we find you interacting with people like us, challenging our wrong thinking and calling us into a clear view of who you are and why you've come. And so, Father, deepen that in us. Thank you for the, the simple testimony about your affection for people in the fact that you called somebody like Simon Peter to be one of the lead apostles in the world after your, your resurrection and ascension. That you would call somebody like this who, who had a temper, uh, who got things wrong, um, who led with his heart, and who was willing to be rebuked and humbled and quick to confess. And uh, Lord, thank you for that. Thank you that the examples that you give us in your word of people who follow you and carry out your will um, are not just people who uh, are holier than any of us could ever aspire to be, but are people who are like us. Help us to see the ways that we live out our true belief in who you are, in ways that are, that are misguided. Uh, help us to see the places where, if, if, we're, if we're people who are inclined to believe that you are displeased with us, and so we live out our spiritual lives trying to just please you. Um, <coughs> help us to see the folly of that, the, the, um, the unnecessary nature of that, that you have reconciled us by your grace. And uh, Lord, we're thankful for your love and your mercy, for being our Christ. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.